Chapter Six of Fifty Years a Detective, Thirty Five Real Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Fatima da Silva. Fifty Years a Detective, Thirty Five Real Detective Stories by Thomas Furlong. A remarkable case identification of a little girl from a description given of her father leads to the latter's arrest identification of criminals from descriptions is not always an easy task for two reasons first there are but few men who can intelligently describe a person from memory this is an art within itself the second reason is it takes so little to change the general appearance of a man to such a degree that it is hard to pick him up from a mere description that is unless the man wanted has some peculiar feature or form that is very noticeable the ordinary man to change his general appearance has to do but little a change of shape or style of hat or clothing the cutting off or growing of a moustache or even a haircut or shave will often serve the purpose i have never claimed to have what is today called a camera eye but i did a piece of identification work while special agent of the allegheny valley railroad in the early seventies of which i have always been proud for the reason that there has absolutely never been another case like it in the police annals of the entire country during the spring 1874 a man giving the name of joseph chalfant applied to mr thomas m king the division superintendent of the allegheny valley railroad at pittsburgh pennsylvania for a situation as locomotive engineer this man chalfant was a rather remarkable person appearing to be about thirty-six years of age he stood more than six feet in height with extremely long arms and legs his complexion was dark and sallow and his hair coarse and black his neck was very long with a noticeable adam's apple his cheekbones were high and his nose straight and long his eyes were beady and black being set far back in his head and very close together they were crowned with a bushy pair of eyebrows which met above the ridge of his nose then to make the picture more complete his forehead was low giving his head a small bullet-like appearance the reader can see that a description of this man if given accurately and with any care could be almost as good as a photograph Chalfant presented a letter of recommendation from the master mechanic of the Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway at Buffalo, New York. The letter was very good and stated that Chalfant had been in the employ of that company for a couple of years and that he had left its service of his own accord because he hoped to benefit himself by a change of climate superintendent king was a close observer and a good judge of human nature he was badly in need of men at the time 
and being rather impressed with Charfant's appearance and manner, he examined him as to the rules governing the movement of trains. He stood a fair examination and was engaged. It is usual for an engineer who has not been promoted on a road, or who comes from another road, to spend several weeks in riding on the engines back and forth over the portion of the road on which he is expected to run. In this way, a man could become familiar with all the grades, switches, side tracks, curves, signals, and so forth. Chalfant was given a copy of the company's rules and an order to learn the road. When he had done this, he was given freight engine number 42 to haul freight between South Oil City and Pittsburgh. One day, he was given a train of empty oil tanks at Pittsburgh and started for South Oil City with them. He arrived there in due time and turned the cars in safely. The following evening, he was given a train of 45 full oil tanks with orders to take them to Pittsburgh. When he reached Sarah's furnace, about half the distance to Pittsburgh, he received orders to run upon the side track there and allow a northbound freight to pass him. He took the siding as he had been ordered, and in due time, the first section of the freight met and passed him there. The engine on this section carried two red lights, which is the warning to railroad men that another section is following the first one, and it has the same roadway privileges as the first section. It therefore became the duty of Chalfant to remain upon the siding until the second section had passed him. Instead of doing this, however, Chalfant pulled out on the main line and started for Pittsburgh. About one and a half miles south of Sarah's Furnace, there is a curve known as Hard Scrabble Curve, which is one of the shortest and most dangerous curves on the road. Here on this curve, Chalfant's train collided with the second section, which was going north. Both engines were about the same size and weight, so when they met the force of 95 empty cars going north and 45 loaded cars going south, caused the engines to rear up in front, crushing the machinery of both. The fire from the boilers immediately spread, and soon the oil tanks were a mass of flame. As the heat grew greater, the tanks exploded, scattering the blazing oil over the surface of the Olgany River. The current was quite strong, and it carried the blazing oil downstream for miles, spreading destruction as it went. The heat from the oil changed the wreckage into a mass of molten metal. Chalfant's fireman was crushed to death, as was his front brakeman. The same fate overtook the engineer, fireman and brakeman of the northbound train. The bodies were cremated in the blazing oil. At this time, oil was worth from 7 to $8 per barrel. The amount of oil lost totals up to nearly $200,000 in value. The company's loss in property was not less than $500,000, besides being responsible for the loss of the five lives. All this destruction was caused by the incompetency of Chalfant and the negligence of his conductor. Chalfant, luckily or rather unluckily, 
escaped with his life by springing from his engine cab out upon the bluff side of the track here he climbed an almost perpendicular cliff about four hundred feet high the blaze from the oil had burned nearly all the clothing from his back and had singed the back of his head and neck into a blister he escaped into the hills the officers of the company at pittsburgh were notified immediately by wire and a wrecking train and crew were sent to the scene post haste in charge of superintendent king they arrived at the wreck early the following morning here superintendent king learned what facts he could as to the cause of the wreck he then wired to me to come to the wreck on the first train i was at oil city at the time and left immediately arriving at the wreck about noon on my arrival mr king walked a little distance down the track out of earshot from the noise of the wrecking crew and sat down upon a log he then told me what he had learned and as to the cause of the wreck he also proceeded to describe chalfon to me he was so deliberate and careful in this description that it took him nearly an hour to do it he had that rare faculty of being able to describe one person to another with accuracy he then said tom do you think you could recognize this man from the description i have given you i answered yes i believe i could the description you have given me reminds me very much of morg Irwin, a passenger engineer on the road at this mr king usually very quiet and sedate grew very excited and clapped his hands as if in joy exclaiming why didn't i think of that before he looks like morg Irwin." i then said no mr king he looks very much like Irwin, but not exactly like him he is very much like him in some respects though being taller than Irwin." chalfant's neck is longer and his adam's apple is much larger more prominent his eyes are not so large and are set back further in his head than Irwin's. chalfant's cheekbones are much higher while his hair is more coarse and much like horsehair in short Irwin is a more refined man than chalfant to this mr king replied tom i feel sure that you will be able to identify that man on sight and i want you to get him at all hazards spare no time or trouble but get him take him to catanning the county seat of westmoreland company pennsylvania where this wreck occurred and lodge him in jail mr king then told me that i would find the letter of recommendation chalfont had given him on file in his office at pittsburgh I took the first train for Pittsburgh, where I applied to Mr. Joe Reinhardt, Mr. King's chief clerk, who was later president of the great Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe system, and he turned the letter over to me. I then concluded to go to Buffalo and see the master mechanic of the Lake Shore, from whose office the letter purported to come. At Buffalo, I found the master mechanic and showed him Chalfant's letter after reading the letter he told me that the letterhead was genuine but the letter itself with stamp seal and signature were forgeries he had neither written the letter nor authorized it 
that he identified Chalfant's handwriting. I learned that Chalfant had been a country school teacher earlier in his life, and that he received such small pay as such that he could not support his wife and children. He came to Buffalo, where he applied for work in the roundhouse of the Lake Shore shops there. He was given a position at wiping engines in the roundhouse. Here also his salary was too small to support his family and pay rent at the same time, so he was forced to move once a month to avoid paying rent. One day he got into the master mechanic's office and stole a part of a block of the official letter heads of the company. He then wrote himself a letter of recommendation which he had shown to Mr. King, and when the chance offered, he stamped and sealed the letter after stealing the stamp one night from the office. About this time, he became so lazy and indolent that he was reprimanded by the master mechanic. The master mechanic told me that he had discharged Chalfant previous to his going to Pittsburgh because of failure to pay his grocery bills and his rent. The grocers and landlords were garnishing his wages, and as the company did not tolerate such things, he was discharged. He also said that Chalfant's family was somewhere in Buffalo, but he did not know their whereabouts because they had moved so often. I thanked him for this information and then decided to see the superintendent of police. I called at the office of Superintendent Phillips and asked him to give me an officer who was more familiar with the haunts and dwellings of railroad men in Buffalo than I was. He gladly assented and assigned Detective Tony Collins to assist me. We started out by canvassing the grocers, butchers and milkmen in the neighborhood where the Lakeshore Railway men resided. During the forenoon, we found many who knew of Chalfant's family, but did not know where they were at present. About 3 p.m., as Collins and I were going down a side street called Hayward Street, I noticed a group of six or eight children playing before a row of wooden cottages, or more properly, shacks. One little girl in a dirty blue dress attracted my attention because of the likeness she bore to Chalfant according to my description of him. I also noticed a grocery on the corner below us. When we got to the grocery, I told the man with me, Detective Collins, to go back to the group and ask the little girl in the blue dress to deliver a package to his wife. He was to tell her that he lived in the large white house down the street. I then told him to return to the grocery with the girl so that I could get a chance to speak to her without exciting her. He returned in a few moments with a little girl who looked uncommonly like a little Indian squaw and who proved to be the living image of her father. While Collins was inside the store examining the vegetables, I said to the girl, Why, hello, sis. Where is your Uncle Charlie now? She smiled and said, Oh, do you know Uncle Charlie? I said, Oh, sure, I know him well. She then said, He's down in Pennsylvania firing on the railroad. Uncle Charlie was Chalfant's brother-in-law and had gotten a position as fireman at the same time Chalfant got his job as engineer. I then said to her, Is your father home now? She looked up and said, 
yes he got home a couple of days ago but he is sick and oh he said i mustn't tell anyone i said that's all right but tell me which one of those houses do you live in she said we live in that middle one with a bunch of rags stuffed in the window i attracted colin's attention and told him to send the girl away on some pretext we then went up to the house the girl had pointed out i sent collins around to the back door and i went to the front door and knocked mrs charfant opened the door and when i asked for joe charfant she attempted to slam the door in my face i pushed the door open and entered the house seeing no one in the front room i walked through it to the door of the back room here i saw charfant seated before a window with his head and neck all swathed in bandages as i entered the room he said without moving well mr furlong you have got me i answered yes joe i am sorry to say i have this showed conclusively that i had been pointed out to him while he was on the road without my knowledge here i will state that up to the time i entered that room i had never seen joe charfant himself nor a picture or photograph of him he had seen me and had heard me speaking so that he knew my voice i had suspected from the first that charfant might know me so when i saw the little girl whom i believed was his daughter i did not stop in front of the houses in which i supposed the children lived but kept on to the grocery store this is the only case of its kind on record in which an officer picked out a child from a group of children and recognized her from a description of her father whom the officer had never seen i arrested charfant and took him to katanning as mr king had ordered i then went to pittsburgh and reported in detail to general superintendent j j lawrence meanwhile it dawned upon me that i had done a rather commendable thing in arresting this man charfant and i was expecting a little praise from the general superintendent imagine my surprise upon being ushered into his office at his beginning to reprimand me for arresting charfant he said furlong you have gotten this company into a lot of trouble by arresting this man to this i replied why sir mr king ordered me to get him at all hazards and i simply carried out his orders he then went on in a most bitter tone well you should not have done it i think i shall be forced to discharge you for so doing from your reports from buffalo i see that charfant was not an engineer and therefore an incompetent employee that makes this company liable to damages for the lives lost and for all the property destroyed in that wreck don't you see what you have done i was angered at his words and said colonel lawrence if you did not want that man arrested mr king should not have ordered me to get him i believe i am entitled to some little credit for the capture of this man in view of the fact that the feat is so far unparalleled so far as discharging me goes that will be unnecessary for i have already quit the service of a company which does not approve of my work to this colonel lawrence replied furlong i beg your pardon and want to compliment you on your good work on this and other cases but when this case comes to trial all the facts of charfant's incompetency will be laid bare 
and it will cost us a lot of money. I then said, Oh, I can fix that. What can you suggest? He asked me. I will get some prominent lawyer, I said, to sign his bond. He will be released, and as the quarterly session is nearly three months away, it will be hard to find him in three months. Colonel Lawrence said, See that that is done, and I will greatly appreciate it. A few days later, a prominent lawyer of Catanning signed a bond for Chalfant's appearance in court. He was released and at once set out for parts unknown. Of course, he did not appear for trial, and the bond was declared forfeited. Through professional courtesy, the bond was never collected. Chalfant was not heard from until the railroad strike at Pittsburgh in 1877, when he again appeared in Pittsburgh under an alias and got a job on the Panhandle Railway running a passenger engine on the McDonald accommodation. He got partly over the road on his first trip, and failing to get the proper amount of water in the boiler, the crown sheet blew out of the locomotive, scolding his fireman badly. He again took to the woods and disappeared, and to my knowledge has not been heard of since. End of chapter 6